the initially nobody tried to hide it. So steer tactic, functional researching, really was initiated to replace. They were stimulating with 10 volt uh, on each side. And I used to say to Lozano, my car has 12 volt on one side. <laughs> Are the electrodes in the brain? Well, one should, of course, not forget the 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 free uh, psychosurgical history in the realm of stereotaxy. So when Horsley initiated cortical surgery, right? So when people say today that it was the neurosurgeons alone, this is a myth. I have seen orgasm during surgery. I have seen uh, sexual fantasy. I have seen many, many things. Uh, people crying, people laughing, people you know, during intraoperative uh, stimulation. Welcome to Stimulating Brains. Hello and welcome to Stimulating Brains. As you could probably tell from the teasers, this episode is a special one. Not only because we get to discuss the resonance of psychosurgery in the history of stereotactic and functional neurosurgery, but also because we get to do that with a celebra troika of world experts. Join us as Dr. Jochen Kraus, Dr. Marwan Harris, and Dr. Christian Mall remember and reflect on the history of this field but also infect us with this idea of a serendipitous model that can drive discovery. Now, to address the elephant in the room, you're probably wondering, this doesn't sound like Andy. And you'll be correct in assuming so. My name is Ala. I'm a PhD student at Western University Canada, and I am delighted to be the one who prepared this episode for today. I leave you off with Andy, who will guide and facilitate the rest of this episode, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Thank, thank you so much, um, uh, Joachim, Juan, and Christian for joining me for this uh, special episode um, of the podcast about a bit the history um, of functional neurosurgery, but also uh, potentially psychosurgery. And then also another topic we have today is in serendipity um, in discovery science and in, in especially in neurosurgery. Since Marwan and Christian have been on the podcast before in episodes one and three, actually, um, we hear Joachim for the first time here. So uh, to break the ice um, and before we get into the science, I always ask about free time and hobbies. So since since you're um, new, maybe you want to share a bit about what you do and if you have any free time at all. Okay, well, I I must say I do a lot of different things besides uh, medicine. And um, well, I, I wouldn't call these hobbies, but it's just uh, I, uh, in being involved in, in different types of nature. I listen to a lot of music. I love to go to concerts. I love to go to art shows and uh, uh, I love to go hiking, kayaking. One problem I have with music is that I always got into very extreme forms. So it um, doesn't matter if it's 
metal music or classical music and Baba knows he'll come with me, me one time to concert and uh, so I, I really had great joy listening to music the one reason is I cannot listen to music while I'm in, doing surgery it's completely impossible I would be completely distracted yeah. so but um, if I would not be that heavily involved in music surgery I think I could do a lot of different things Great. Okay. So some music and then metal music. Uh, uh, did I hear that right as well? It's like extreme forms. Of cool. uh, actually, it's not really metal music. It's some kind of, uh, I would say, extreme metal music. Can you name some groups or bands? Oh, well, I, well um, Mayhem. Okay. More, more that kind of drone music, Earth, Sun. There's a lot of fantastic stuff out there, yeah? And uh, I, I rediscovered just a couple of years ago going to f to festivals again, and just great joy. Amazing! That sounds that sounds great. Um, would you would you have listened to music while operating, Marvan? Uh, I don't listen to music while operating. Okay. Uh, I don't like it. I want to concentrate. I'm like you, Akim. Okay. I mean, our our eyes completely forbidden. I must say. It's okay. forbidden now. Okay. I see. Yeah. And then can you share a bit who were your key mentors in your career, um, uh, Joachim, since yeah. you right from the others? Well, I, I've been into a lot of different uh, fields to, to be true. Actually, I, I started my thesis on the basal ganglia in neuropharmacology. So my key mentor was Professor Meyer from Freiburg. And at that time, I wanted to be a pharmacologist, actually. Then somehow I got into neurology and I always had a very big interest in movement disorders. So it was, I was very lucky and fortunate that I met Professor Mundinger in 1985 in Freiburg. And uh, I, then I, I joined his, his department and, and somehow it, this was a key ignition for my further career, of course. And uh, I looked at all of the films and videos he had from old patients. It was also my my um, my start of uh, being interested in, in history. Yeah. And then, of course, I went to microsurgery with Professor Zega. Again, I focused a little bit on movement disorders with peripheral denervation and so on. And uh, then I had another jump to a different aspect, uh, working with uh, Bob Grossman and Joe Jankovic in the United States for, for two years doing panidotomies, thalamotomies, which I did already before in, in Freiburg. And uh, later, the, the next big influence, I must say, was Peter Schmidek, who, who taught me how to do uh, vascular neurosurgery. So that's so why I got a lot of different twists and turns uh, that, that brought me to the mix I'm actually uh, doing both uh, in daily work and also in my, my scientific interest. Great. And, and you are a neurologist as well, correct? You yeah. have a facharzt in I, I'm, a, I'm facharzt for neurology. So I, I started my training with neurology, then went back to neurosurgery, back to neurology. But uh, I'm I'm very actually proud that I'm facharzt for neurology. But very, my, very nice. But the work, of course, is neurosurgery. <laughs> Christian always said, talks when he talks about the history about um you know uh, surgical neurologists or also um neurological surgeons i think so um that that 
that fits your description as well, I'm, I'm sure. So, yeah. Um, what, one last question, more focusing on you, uh, Joachim. Uh, we heard from Vele Visavandavale in episode 31 just recently that, uh, um, and I think I've seen it from, from in your talks quite often, that 1999 was a special year for deep brain simulation with three unique papers all published in the same journal in The Lancet. Um, and one of them was yours and involved, I think, the first uh, three cases of um, palatal deep brain stimulation for dystonia. First of all, is that correct? Were these the first cases? And then also, can you tell us a little bit what led up to this trial and about the impact it had at the time? So I actually did. They were the first three patients with cervical dystonia. Yeah, and okay. uh, so how did I come to do that? I was in Houston in the mid-1990s, and... Uh, I saw some dystonia patients, so we did regular polydotomy on the PD patients, and uh, we started also to perform polydotomy on um, uh, dystonia patients. And until that, the main target actually for dystonia was the thalamus. Many people now think that the main target was a polydotomy, but it's not true. Polydotomy was not a surgery that had been performed regularly for dystonia. It was always thalamotomy. But then uh, Bob Grossman, he was a bit hesitant and uh, he wasn't sure if that would work. So um, uh, then I went to Switzerland from Houston. And when I came there, I, I had several patients who were waiting for me for surgery with cervical dystonia. And uh, they showed me some patients where I should do peripheral denervation. And some of these patients were so severe, severe retrocolis, problem with swallowing. So I. I saw peripheral innovation is not a good option in this patient. And then I thought, now I have the chance uh, to explore the, the GPI as a target for, for dystonia. Uh, we went to the ethical commission together with uh, Jean-Marc Burgunder. And we started with the first patient. And the, we told the patient, we, we are not sure what will happen. And we hope you will improve. We have a good concept. The, the theory it should work, but we're not sure. And the patient had a fantastic response to it to other patients. And that was the birth of um, palatal DBS for cervical dystonia. And also, of course, these were some of the first patients worldwide for, for dystonia, along with Morbihan and Oxford. Yeah. And when we were very lucky to publish in The Lancet, it was difficult to publish because people initially just did not believe it that it would work. And they wanted to have a bigger series, but of course, that it takes some time. And you always need a pilot series to start it somehow. Sure. Yeah. Great. So, so the so the first cases you you mentioned Montpellier and in Oxford were then generalized dystonia, I assume, or yeah. At the same time, I I think at the same time also in Toronto, Andres Rosano had a patient with generalized dystonia, Philip Coop in Montpellier, and then Tipu shortly thereafter also in in Oxford. But uh, I, I must say, generalized dystonia became much more readily accepted as an indication. And I would sure. say five to 10, 15 years that cervical dystonia was accepted as well. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, may I ask a question as well? And it, of course, please. Uh, that, 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 that's pretty interesting what you say. Could you uh, perhaps specify a bit who you mean with uh, the people just didn't believe? So who... Who in the community didn't believe it? And for, for, for what reasons? The neurologists? I mean, the, the old neurosurgeons would have would have believed, right? They perhaps were not the referees for your paper, but, but who, who did it all believe? 
actually, actually, nobody believed it. So nobody believed it. Urologists didn't believe. Um, I sent a paper to Google Disorders. Uh-huh. And they said, well, this is very interesting, but uh, may- maybe submit it again when you have more patients when we see that it really works. I understood, of course, in a way. And then also old neurosurgeons didn't believe. I remember I was in Hamburg in 1999 and uh, there was an old elder gentleman sitting in the audience and uh, functional neurosurgeon. He said, what the hell are you doing? He mixed up the target. Did you say particle stimulation? Why did you do so? So uh, it took some years to convince uh, people that this really works. Can I say something? Please. This is the same phenomenon than when we started posteroventral pallidotomy for Parkinson's disease in the mid-80s. And I was at two meetings in Paris. And Jean Siegfried and Serge Blanc said to me, this is rubbish, this is obsolete, this is something that uh, is abandoned. Uh, the pallidum has been abandoned for, for Parkinson's disease. What, what are you talking about? And this became a citation classic and the whole world then did posteroventral pallidotomy. And the second thing I want to say is that Vale van der Valle, uh, with all due respect, is wrong. It's not three papers in 1999, it's five papers. It's a paper about Tourette by van der Valle, it's Nutin about OCD, it's uh, Joachim Krauss about cervical dystonia, all three in Lancet. And then there is a paper in uh, uh, Revue Neurologique from uh, uh, Montpellier, Philippe Coub, about uh, DPS for generalized dystonia, also in 99. And the fifth paper was from Kumar and Lozano in Neurology uh, about DBS and a PET study in generalized dystonia. And that paper is interesting because I asked Lozano, you are stimulating, if you re- I can send you the paper, I have it in front of me. They were stimulating with 10 volt uh, on each side. And I used to say to Lozano, my car has 12 volt on one side. <laughs> Are there electrodes in the brain? This was a paper that uh, was also uh, a pioneering paper. 10 volt in each pallidol. Wow. I, I have to um, I have to defend Vela uh, quickly because it was more me me saying three papers, not not her. And I know that from from um, uh, Joachim's talk. So I. I, I, it was not her saying that. I just want to make uh, set that right. It was my fault. I, I, blame, I blame you. It's five papers. Five papers. Good, good to learn. Always great to um, to learn. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Marwan. Um, that's very interesting. And and I agree. Ten volts. Um, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. On each side. So okay. we we wanted to focus this episode on historical origins of the brain simulation and um, also functional neurosurgery. Um, uh, and specifically focus on on two papers. Um, both are co-authored by Marwan. So the first one is uh, Marwan and Joachim are authors on it, um, along other colleagues. And in it, it in it entails the involvement of psychosurgery in the history of functional neurosurgery. So, in a way, I think it it makes the point that um, psychosurgery was a direct predecessor of the modern, more neurological. Um, quote-unquote, uh, functional neurosurgery. And then the second is first authored by by Marwan and has made strong waves this year about the impact of serendipity in functional neurosurgery. 
So maybe we can start with the first uh, paper and I would like to ask, uh, start asking Marwan, um, is it even possible to summarize in brief what people think now historically about the term psychosurgery? Who were the key players? What were the origins and how, how did the key events unfold? The initiative for that paper was uh, from uh, Joachim together with uh, uh, Clara, what's her name? Red, 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 Red. Lara, Lara Resnicek from Berlin, actually. So yeah. the, the initiative was from Joachim and uh, Lara. And uh, this paper, uh, actually, uh, I learned a lot from this paper because uh, among other things that the, the picture uh, about the first uh, functional neurosurgery, stereotactic neurosurgery, was censored. So you find this picture everywhere with Spiegel and Weiss operating, and it's taken from uh, Life magazine, I think, U.S. Uh, Life magazine in the in the late 40s, and it is censored in the sense that that was a psychosurgical intervention. And uh, uh, one of my uh, heroes, actually my colleague uh, uh, who is dead now, who was student of... Uh, of uh, Spiegel and, and Weiss. Uh, his name is Philip Gildenberg. He was the opponent in my PhD thesis uh, here in Umeå. He always said that the first uh, surgery was uh, surgery for Huntington, while uh, the paper demonstrates that the first surgery was uh, uh, mediodorsal uh, thalamotomy for, uh, for psychiatric illness. And uh, the paper uh, that we're talking about said that uh, uh, as Mundiger said, that uh, psychosurgery was progressing in the in the in the 60s and 70s in silence, so it was like under the radar. But then, if I wa uh, have to be co-author again on that paper, I would say maybe it's not so true, because there have been a society called the International Society of Psychosurgery that had meeting the first meeting in Lisbon, 1948. The second meeting in Copenhagen, 1970. The third in Cambridge, 72. The fourth in Madrid, 75. And the last was in Boston in 78. And uh, this is, uh, uh, there are pictures of everybody there. There were a lot of psychiatrists, neurologists, uh, new, uh, neurosurgeons, etc. And the key player on the neurosurgery side were Bill Sweet, uh, Sixto Obrador from Madrid, Lore Leitinen from uh, Finland at that time, and then Sweden, uh, Björn Meyerson from Sweden, uh, and, and many others. And they have proceedings. It's very interesting. These proceedings, you don't see them on PubMed, but I have all the books. And there were a lot of papers on ethics, a lot of papers on, on uh, uh, trials, a lot of papers on, on uh, the involvement of psychiatrists, etc. So why I'm saying that is because there was a society of psychosurgery that had several big meetings that was multidisciplinary with uh, many known psychiatrists that were also involved and, and uh, wrote papers there. And this is contradictory to what we hear today, that the neurosurgeons were alone, were like cowboys without, uh, in, uh, without uh, multidisciplinarity, etc. This is wrong. This, this is a myth, a mantra that we, we hear all the time. Okay. Actually, when we started with this project, in the end, we had two papers and we published two papers with Lara and Marwan. So the first paper was on the origin of functional stereotactic neurosurgery. And the second paper was on the uh, 
hidden agenda, a little bit of hidden agenda of psychosurgery in the 60s and 70s. So it was two different papers. And I, I must say also, I, I wrote an article with Phil Gildenberg. Phil Gildenberg was also in Houston. I met him there. And so we wrote the chapter for the big textbook on functional neurosurgery. And I do not know why Phil actually uh, said that the first surgery was indeed for Huntington's disease. So that was also written in this chapter. And not only us, we made this meeting, actually everyone did. And as Manuel said, it was somehow censored, but so it was great learning to, to rediscover the, the, the history. Yeah? So Mao and me now, we looked into the original data and it was clearly there. At the initially, nobody tried to hide it. So steatactic functional surgery really was initiated to replace lobotomy and leucotomy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, and the stereotactic technique, right? The stereotactic yeah, technique. Absolutely. And, and later, of course, there were all these troubles and turmoils and negative breaths with uh, psychosurgery. And then somehow people wanted to get rid of their past and of the history. Yeah? And then it was the, the roof that uh, functional stereotactic surgery was invented for movement disorders, which obviously is and was wrong. Well, one should of course not forget the 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 pre uh, psychosurgical history in the realm of stereotaxy. So when Horsley initiated cortical surgery, right? There's a many decades of cortical and subcortical surgery before the surgeons really dare to touch upon subcortical structures. It it took quite a while, and following Horsley's operations in 1890 and so on. Uh, Quite a considerable amount of work had been carried out in, in surgery for movement disorders, in uh, and at the basically in parallel to psychosurgery developing. And uh, but these were all mostly um, surgical interventions that were focused on the on this uh, surface of the brain. So the the surgeons were obviously hesitant to touch on upon the deep structures. And that's the main issue, I think, about uh, psychosurgery, because then uh, the focus uh, changed to the white matter tracks and to subcortical aspects. It became more the, the, the focused. And um, still, we, we take the same um, operative um, track from prefrontal and uh, precoronal um, uh, areas of, of the bone. We, we still uh, uh, use this for movement disorder surgery today. But I, what I wanted to say is that we should, of course, not forget that following Horsley, uh, Paul Busey, Ottfried Furster, and all these um, uh, heroes of surgery who worked on in the domain of movement uh, disorders were also very active uh, and uh, pushed the field of functional surgery in the domain of movement disorders forward. And then it was just the pressing need in the domain of steroid, uh, of psychosurgery that uh, uh, the, the, the need was for a less destructive method. And it was just the genius of Spiegel who, um, who just then uh, remembered the, the stereotactic device that had been invented by Horsley and Clark. And that the, he he used he used this, but it it took it didn't took very long 
that the subcortical structures and this method was then also applied to to uh, the field of movement disorders, right? So and and this of course then then took over and 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 became the the, the primary focus of of functional neurosurgery. So, um, this is a great discussion. Um, one second, just just for the listeners. So so what I wanted to make clear again. The, the central um, topic of the paper, I think we haven't summarized that yet, um, uh, or the claim, if I if I if I might um, be able to summarize it, is that, that psychosurgery was there longer, had a, a bad um, you know taste at some point, and then um, was silently further developed into something, and was then forced to become more neurologic, right? And I think in in that concept, you you now mentioned a few things. First of all, Huntington's disease apparently was the first case, not 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 psychiatric illnesses. So, let's say movement disorders cases were were there from the beginning too. Um, but uh, at at the at the time when you know when Grenoble happened with you know um, essential tremor and so on, at at that time. Nobody dared, or not so many people probably dared to do psychiatric indications at that time. Is that still correct? So there was the reinvention of the same thing happening around the 90s. Yeah. Can I talk? Of course, of course. Yeah. It's at least in Sweden, I, I, am, I am brought up with the Capsulotomy, cingulotomy, thalamotomy, pallidotomy, dentatotomy, lucus dentatus, yeah. uh, okay. osteromedial hypothalamotomy. So it was done, but it was done much less than uh, than uh, than movement disorder. And the reason is that the referrals were much less, and very few psychiatrists dared uh, or wanted to refer uh, uh, patients. But if I can just get back to 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 one of the issues that uh, why this uh, uh, this this fear this uh, panic of of psychosurgery that uh, that uh, that uh, Joachim mentioned and this is a question to me, uh, to Joachim too because in the chapter in uh, in the in the big textbook of uh, functional neurotactic neurosurgery the history of uh, 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 stereotactic neurosurgery in Germany, uh, uh, Joachim. Yeah. You, you didn't mention at all the experience of Göttingen, uh, uh, of of uh, Wodev and uh, Ortner and and, and uh, the people who did uh, uh, surgery in 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 Göttingen. That was mostly, but not only, mostly uh, psychosurgery, sexual deviance, uh, uh, pedophilia, etc. And also pallidotomy. Uh, so, how can you explain that? Well, I would say, you know, for some time, people just did not talk about it much. I, I would say in the early 60s, uh, psychosurgery still was there, but by then, in the, in the, I would say, mid 60s, in the end of the 60s, it just got a very bad reputation. That was because of new ideology new politics and then often people just did not talk about it so in the way that we can talk nowadays about psychosurgery even use the word psychosurgery again that is also something new and the process of um re-evaluation and also even if we're living in, in a cancer culture society 
we still now can re-evaluate what happened with uh, psychosurgery. Yeah? And so, so this is kind of unique today because, for example, when you give a lecture now yeah, to, to students, you talk about psychiatric neurosurgery. People just listen. Nobody gets excited. If you would have done so 30 years ago, I think they would have escorted you out of the lecture hall. Yeah? So I, I think it's, it's also the, the, the sign of the times, different attitudes, different ideologies. And uh, these changes, to my opinion, do not happen in the same pace in each place in the world. Yeah? So we also have different cultures where, for example, Japan, where it's completely impossible to, to do psychosurgery. Yeah? even nowadays. So, and uh, I, I think it's, the world has become much more diverse now, even if we have new and more information, yeah? But it's always different attitudes. So always what we say, we talk from a European or European-American perspective. Yeah. May I say something in addition and in response to Marwan? Please, and let's talk. Yeah. It, it, it's just about the experience of the Göttingen team, Marwan. You are right that the Göttingen team who also took up stereotactic procedures in, in, in the mid-50s following Richard's footstep and Moninger's footstep from, from Freiburg, that they kind of specialized in psych, psychosurgery. But um, one should not forget that 80% of the stereotactic surgery that was done by this Göttingen team was also on movement disorders, right? So it's about... 15 to 20 percent that was psychosurgery and that is about perhaps Freiburg did a bit less psychosurgery because they they performed movement disorder stereotactic surgery on an industrial scale throughout the 60s and 70s that is perhaps a bit different but overall uh, it's it's not that the Göttingen team did psychosurgery only right so and, and this is just something that that for me was important to say uh, on, on this occasion here. I know, I know. We have published a paper together. About the oh yeah, right. I remember. <laughs> the, the, the yeah, yeah. I know, but they pub, but they, that they published the psychosurgical experience. Yes, yes. But but can I tell you why? So why would they publish and why would they get this label of of they are the prime among the prime uh, psychiatric surgeons in surgery? because they developed um, the, this hypothalamotomy, right? Um, and the ventromedial hypothalamotomy. And this was then kind of, this is the dream of every stereotactic neurosurgeon, right? So to have a label and a surgery that is your own, that is your baby, and then you publish it and then you, you follow the lines and the most credit and the most re it's the most rewarding thing for a surgeon to, to invent this a type of surgery, right? And this is how they tacked or the, this label became attached to the Göttingen uh, um, team, right? And 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 the first the first DBS in the more or less modern era mm. used a quadripolar electrode was done uh, in Germany by uh, by Diekmann in Hombursar for uh, for uh, uh, for a, one patient and uh, published in 1980 i think ah. did you did, did you meet did did you meet Dickman, joachim and Lavan? was he was he present on the conferences when you well uh, yeah. no. if you ask me christian you know yeah. I, I said before there was one elderly gentleman at tech ah, okay i wasn't <laughs> 
and talking about the Panidum as a target. All right. So that, that actually was Dietmann. <laughs> <laughs> so I met him, yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. That is very interesting. Uh, so that was 10 years before Grenoble then. And you, you say that that was with four electrodes and was chronically implanted as well? Yeah, chronic. I can send you the paper. I would love that. We can add it to the show notes as well. We, you, you, I think, Joachim, you have mentioned um, different cultures over the time, of course, right? You would have been escorted out of the lecture hall if you even talk about psychosurgery um, uh, 30 years ago. At that time, can, can because I was not, I mean, I was alive there, but I, I was not, you know, um, thinking much. Um, can you elaborate a bit? How do you guys think what led to that? Um, you know, did did the counterculture and LSD or the hippie movement play a role, or was it really more the the movies like what one flew over the cuckoo's nest or or Crichton's Terminal Man, or what led to that change of all of a sudden being so against this concept, in your opinion? I question to everybody. I I think a lot of different um, topics came together. First of all, people realized the misery. Sometimes of uh, a lobotomy, leucotomy, that people just uh, lost the interest, lost the will, and of mm -hmm. course also it was a sign of the times, the sixties, where when uh, people revolutionized against older institution and they started to to question things that were established before. And another strong impact, to my opinion, was a psychoanalysis. Because the concept of psychoanalysis, of course, was in a way that you have the soul, there's a soul, there's a mind, and there's a brain. Yeah? So it, it was a different concept. It was a lot of biological concept, psychoanalysis. And so when you look at it from a psychoanalytic view and really question how are you allowed to do such a terrible thing to uh, modify somehow the, the basis of the mind, mind and soul. Yeah. And I, I think that that was one of, of the major things. And then what, what, what you said, like the film went through over the, the cuckoo's nest, I think that had a big impact because then it became, in, it became very popular. People went to the movie. It was a fantastic movie. And you saw Jack Nicholson. You saw the big Indian guy who was transformed into a, a will, willless a person before I was sympathetic later he was just sitting there and so, so I, I think it, it were different issues that came together and, and then people realized and suddenly the, 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 the revolution in psychiatry when they opened up the psychiatric wards and everything came together yeah? and, and then it, it, it happened and if you still would try to defend psychosurgery you would be a bad guy and a culprit defending the past. Would, would, you, would you think some of these concepts apply today as well? Or is it really the, the more very devastating effect sometimes of lobotomy? That's a very different thing than what we're doing right now, I would say. Um, but, you know, could... Yeah, sorry. No, the, the criticism uh, still lingers around, right? I mean, the, the times have changed and um so the, the the mind has opened and the the public has participated in the discussion the politics uh had a strong impact um and authorities were questioned 
And um, so uh, this, of course, uh, is something from the past. So we are now in, in so this is perhaps not the uh, something to us to criticize now. So the authorities, so the, the relationship between the physician and the surgeon to the patient has completely changed um, also due to this development, right, due to the 60s. But still this discussion and this very um, uh, intuitive, intuitive reflexes are still lingering around in terms of criticism. So, and uh, I, I can understand that from a point of view that, of course, uh, psychosurgery, you know, it, it touches upon the the core self of, of people and people can really connect to this. And it's much, you know, it, it's, it's you, you think like, okay, it's uh, what would happen to me if I woke up the next day and I, I wouldn't be the same same person uh so that this core the uh, fear that is uh that uh, everyone can connect to i think this uh there are different um levels that intermix still today when it's about the criticism so it's very difficult in other words to dissociate the the these levels of, of criticism and and to just talk about psychosurgery just on a very say objective and and factual based medicine um side that that is very very difficult to to convey i think and the it's a critical it's a critical issue right to to make people understand that that they learn from history and that they are you know that the psychosurgeons are no no more you know let alone and 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 can do what they want and so on and so forth and uh, then it's it's very important to transfer the the knowledge and the progress that has has been made throughout the last 50 or 60 years in in the in the domain of functional neurosurgery and network neuroscience um to convince and to to stand these these very understandable reflectors i think i think when you mentioned um christian that that uh, surgeons are not let alone anymore i think marwan always brings up a very good point about that right that even also in the past it was not just surgeons um being acting alone it was sometimes even neurologists being left by their surgeons right uh, marwan maybe you can you've mentioned that quite often so i think that's a valid point here have you seen this book so Marwan is showing a book, Studies in Lobotomy by Milton Greenblatt, Robert Arnott, and Harry Solomon. I have not seen it. Okay, this book is a book authored by neurologist, neurosurgeon, psychiatrist, psychologist, occupational therapist, physiotherapist, rehab doctors, students, etc. A huge thing, everything on this, this sex, sexual issue after lobotomy urination after lobotomy, rehabilitation of everything. A truly multidisciplinary book from 1950. 1950. So when people say today that it was the neurosurgeons alone, this is a myth. If you go on the street and you ask somebody who is responsible for lobotomy, they will tell you the neurosurgeon. This is wrong. The most the most fundamentalist for, for lobotomy have been neurologists, psychiatrists, even operating themselves in Norway, in, in, uh, in Sweden, in, in, in many places. 
don't forget that James Watts, the surgeon, abandoned uh, Freeman. That it was Freeman who popularized this. He learned this uh, lobotomy with the ice peak from an Italian psych, uh, psych, psychiatrist in Varese in, in nor northern Italy. Egas Moniz, he, he went around in the world and uh, instructed people, how, instructed psychiatrists how to do this. Neurosurgeons were very reluctant. And I will mention here uh, 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 just one thing. So uh, I cannot show you, but I will read it. It is the first Congress of Psychosurgery in, in Lisbon. That was the first Congress in Lisbon in 1948. 26 uh, countries were represented, none from Germany at that time. That was after the war, etc. But the interesting thing there is that, and I will read from the book now, one of uh, those who were at that meeting in 1948 wrote a, a memoir, and I will read. At that meeting, there were Scoville, who was a neurosurgeon, who described a method of, of just opening here and su uh, sucking in the uh, suction. It's, it was a called suction of, uh, of part of the frontal lobe instead of the, the big lo uh, lobotomy from here or, or from here. And Walter Freeman, not very kindly, said of the technique used that it was like putting a vacuum cleaner into a bath of spaghetti and trying to make a clean a clean incision i am i will send you the slide that is in front of me from that book so freeman was criticizing a neurosurgeon who tried to develop a technique that is less traumatic less invasive than lobotomy saying that it was like sucking a bath of spaghetti so this was the attitude of of uh, some psychiatrists and neurosurgeons, if you look at the proceeding of the psychiatry uh, meeting, the, the, the different meeting I was mentioned, they urged Laurie and proposed a, a, a trial of psychosurgery, which was capsulotomy and singulotomy versus best medical uh, best psychiatric treatment. The same as Deutschel has done for STN DBS, right? Best medical treatment versus DBS for STN. That was proposed by several times by Leighton, but the psychiatrists were not interested. And that was in the 19, uh, early 1970s. So the neurosurgeons were not alone. It was the psychiatrists and the neurologists who were alone. Really? Okay. May I make a side remark, uh, Andy? Of course. Uh, just, just bear with me that I, have, I, I suffer from Germany-centric myopia in this respect. But uh, Mawan, if you look at the uh, at the uh, photograph from 1948, where all the participants of the symposium in Lisbon came together, from a German perspective, it, it's actually very interesting to note that although it's shortly after the Second World War, and uh, obviously German uh, physicians had difficulties to attend international symposia at that time, you find some of the German, you find some German participants, and in particular, it's Traugott Richard from Freiburg, who participated in the symposium, not with a stereotactic contribution, but it is most uh, likely that he uh, learned here about uh, Spiegel and, and Weisses, because Weisses was also participating in the symposium, so and took this, uh, these ideas then to, to Freiburg. That was 1948, and just shortly before he, he started with his own career to, to construct an own uh, stereotactic apparatus and so on. That's just a side remark. And 
has nothing to Thank do with you. the whole story. But for a German perspective, uh, it may be uh, of some importance. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, for this clarification. But were there any psychiatrists from uh, from? Uh... Yes, yes, there were two. Uh, at least I I could identify two of them, uh, Köpke uh, from Tübingen and and Sud. I think uh, he was was he in Frankfurt or Berlin at that time. I don't know. But yeah, there there were some psychiatrists as well. Mm -hmm. Well, it is not very well known. But after we had attended that conference, he performed some uh, leucotomies in Freiburg as well. It's not a big experience, but some cases, and that was before they started to do uh, function stereotactic music. Mm -hmm. But then somehow in tribal, the focus shifted very soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As elsewhere, as elsewhere, as elsewhere, right. So how, how so moving, moving to the more then modern time after DBS was reinvented in, in the 90s um, in in Grenoble, um, we did briefly talk about the the first case by Vela Visavandavale in 1999, um, which was uh, Tourette's. Um, and I think Vela um, quoted you, Marwan, indeed, in this case, uh, that you said this was maybe the, the first neuropsychiatric indication in the modern era for, with DBS. And then, of course, the same year, um, also 1999, OCD by, by Bart Nortin with the first cases. So. Um, how how was how did the feeling shift and 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 why why did 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 we start then DVS for psychiatric diseases again? Uh, shall I start? I think it was I meet again that if you don't mention lesions, not even stereotactic lesions, that would appeal more to the psychiatrist. And this has been going on since 1999. So it's like 24 years, which is still in gestation. It's a chronic pregnancy. It still has not delivered because they tried to fool the psychiatrist to be more uh, uh, approachable, more uh, keen on referring patients by saying that this is not a lesion, this is deep brain simulation, reversible, we can shut it down, etc. And many psychiatrists, they don't care. As long as you enter the brain, it's, it's for them, it's, uh, it's uh, surgery. And I think that this is the main issue because they are replacing a cheap, efficient therapy called cingulotomy or capsulotomy with a very expensive one that uh, uh, is DBS that can help, of course, I have done it and, and we know it helps, but this has uh, uh, been something that uh, uh, the companies have reacted to because now in Europe, it's not approved uh, for, for OC. Even in Germany, you have to, to, to seek uh, approval. And uh, the reason is that yeah, it is not... Sorry? It, it was what? approved for a while. I mean, for OCD, DBS was approved. And now again, you have to see the proof. Yeah, and the reason is not it's not uh, it's not uh, profitable enough for the the industry. But the the issue is that the main issue is that, and I was at the first meeting that was I think in Aix les Bains in uh, 2001 after that Nutan started uh, in 99, and they thought that this will be the second chance uh, for psychosurgery to come back, and. If we look at the uh, 
result 23 years later, it's still very, very, very few patients who are referred to uh, OCD or, or Tourette or, or, or depression. Uh, may I say something? I think why Tourette, why did we first see BBS in, in Tourette? I think that's because somehow Tourette is on the border zone between movement disorders and psychiatry. So to my opinion, it was more easy to accept for many people that we have a new treatment for ticks. And uh, also initially, when you look at the publications, most of the publications would say, well, our first goal is to treat the ticks. It's, it's not the first goal to treat the personality and the psychiatric disturbances, but unlike any other movement disorder, of course, ticks are much more rooted in psychological issues than, than let's say, dystonia or Parkinson's disease. You need monetary urge than the storm of ticks where when you suppress it and so on. Yeah, But it's just the way to accept it easier in a movement disorder than in a psychiatric disorder. With, with OCD, I don't fully understand why OCD became that readily accepted. But one reason might be that uh, OCD might be seen, like many other movement disorders, like a circuitopathy. Like we can say, okay, we have the bad nucleus, we have the amygdala, we have the travel capsule, and we know the circuitry. Which is not the case for that simply for schizophrenia or, or depression, which is much more complex, it's more of the whole of the brain. And uh, so, uh, but I still don't understand why OCD, Zwangsneurose, yeah. as you say in Germany, but was readily accepted by most of The question is as to how far this uh, theoretic uh, background with a circuit being involved, uh, providing a rational for, for surgery, as to how far this really played a role uh, when, when Bart Nutan started uh, his work on OCD patients, right? I think with OCD, it's like um, there, there had been a lot of experience with OCD also during the stereotactic lesional area, and this is certainly different from Tourette's. I mean, Tourette's, with Tourette's, there have been, I think, very few patients with Tourette's had been treated also during the lesioning area of stereotaxy, uh, but this was different with, with OCD. So OCD became one of the mainstays of psychosurgery, actually, after the open psychosurgery had been abandoned. Um, um, yeah, so schizophrenia, OCD, and, and, uh, aggressive behavior. That was, I think these three were the, the cardinal, the, the three main indications of stereotactic psychosurgery, if I, if I'm right, uh, in, in this respect. And perhaps it may also be interesting to, to think about the, the lastly mentioned behavioral, um, uh, disorder uh, abnormality that had been widely treated and had been uh, at least in in the domain of functional psychosurgery and accepted uh, it was an accepted indication so to speak in parallel to OCD and to schizophrenia um, what what happened to 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 these patients maybe interesting to think about that I'm not saying I'm not suggesting this is a new hot topic it should be it should be treated but it's interesting and it also confirms what Joachim mentions that 
you know, so the hesitancy uh, to to talk about this topic. So, okay, with with Tourette's, you have it, it's it's closer to neurology. With OCD, well, yeah, there is some behavioral output, and um, but it gets more and more difficult and and more complicated and more even more black the box. And when it comes about these, uh, yeah, uh, aggressive, autoaggressive behavior, then uh, it it may have been very difficult to to tackle this uh, this subject uh, at that time. Yeah, but it had been one of the main indications. Uh, one of the best papers on lesions for Gilles de la Tourette is from Freiburg. By I have it in front of me by Babel, Warnke, and Ostertag, mm -hmm. published in 2001. But this is their experience from long time ago. It's a fantastic paper about lesion in the thalamus and infrathalamic area. And there are there is the quality of life, there is the activity of daily living, there is a lot of in this lesion paper. So uh, uh, and now I know that in some places. Uh, lesional surgery is coming back for Gilles de la Tourette, in in the especially in the capsule. And one of the papers with Mike Mark Hallett was uh, on that paper is from China. Mark Hallett is co-author of Pallidotomy uh, for for uh, uh, for Gilles de la Tourette. The other thing I want to say is that when it comes to DBS, with the STN accepted, uh, if you accept accept the STN from from this. All the targets that have been lesioned, somebody come and put an electrode. So why the capsule for Nbatnutin? That was actually the idea of Björn Meyerson, who was on the paper with the, although the, the patient of Björn Meyerson were never uh, reported uh, in that paper, the new paper 1999. Uh, it should have been six patients. It was only four patients in the Lancet paper. But this is another story. So uh, I'll tell later. Uh, what what happened is that uh, uh, Van de Valle put an electrode where Hustler did the lesion. Benabit put an electrode where the thalamotomy. Uh, Jean Siegfried put an electrode where Leiter and Palidot. Uh, all of them, except the STN in movement disorder, were lesion uh, targets. And the same in psychiatry. The posteromedial hypothalamus, the cingulum, the, the anterior capsule, the bed nucleus of stria terminalis. The bed nucleus of stria terminalis was lesioned by Bursaco, neurosurgeon in in, uh, in Spain, a psychosurgeon in Spain. And they put, Newtown put an electrode there. So my opinion is that all this is mimicking the lesion. And why? Because, because the circuitry that some people try, are rediscovering today uh, thanks to tractography and functional imaging, etc., they knew the circuitry. Spiegel himself he he explained in a nice paper why he chose the dorsomedial thalamus. Well, he chose the dorsomedial thalamus because after lobotomy, the Valerian degeneration was published the same year from from the orbitofrontal cortex was the, was to the back to the thalamus. So Spiegel chose based on this circuitry the uh, the the medial dorsal thalamus as the uh, as a target, while Talerac, instead of the thalamus, he chose the fibers doing the anterior capsulotomy, the fibers from the thalamus to the orbit of uh, frontal cortex. And uh, don't forget that the circuitry of Papez was published in 1937. And most of the targets 
for both lesion and later for uh, stimulation are on different nodes, different points in the circuitry of papes, the circuitry of emotion. That was tracing studies, not imaging studies. Absolutely. And I, I, I personally, even though I, I use tractography, often look at the Hustler books and so on to, to get the actual knowledge. Um, so I totally agree with you. A lot was much more was known back then. I would even say this is the perfect segue into the second paper um, that was uh, uh, authored by, by Marwan, I think his first author and, and with, with several uh, co-authors as well. Um, the central, that's a serendipity uh, paper. So the central take there is that serendipitous discoveries, for example, with a stroke leading to a symptom improvement or symptom, uh, you know, worsening, um, have been driving the field of neuromodulation and functional surgery and not so much in contrast, maybe what we would think, um, which could be, you know, translating things from animals to, to humans, which is the, you know, mainly funded model. That's, that's what everybody thinks. So your paper, I think that did a great job and opened the eyes of many people actually to, um, to see, no, if we just look back, there are not so many wins for that classic model from animals to humans, but it's usually really from humans to humans. Do you, do you want to say a bit more broadly about this topic, Mawan? I think the best one to say more broadly about the topic is Joachim, because I think he reviewed the paper and uh, accepted it eventually. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, I cannot see anything new, of course. <laughs> I know that you reviewed the paper. And I, get, I, but I, I, I always like to read the paper about one, of course. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for accept. Thank you for accepting after modification. Did you have doubts that it would be accepted, Marwan, or? <laughs> he, he wanted me to change the title. <laughs> he wanted me to say uh, serendipity and observation. That is the title. As if, as if serendipity didn't include observation. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I, I cannot say anything about that, because I should know. <laughs> okay. No, uh, Andy, Andy, you, you, you are in this field better known than anybody else. Tell me which targets have been implemented in, in human based on animal med model, except the SCN. Uh, exactly. So I, I, I very much agree with you, when, but it still opened my eyes. You know, that's why I think it's such an important paper. Um, I, we really, so Mike Fox, uh, my mentor in Boston is also a great fan of it. Um, and we've been discussing it really a lot and thought about, can we find different, um, you know, counter examples? And I would even say, even the one with, um, Haggai Bergman's STN, you know, lesion paper, you could still say that the MPTP model, which is a great Parkinsonian animal model, still came from humans, right? From from serendipitous discovery with the frozen addicts and so on. So even, you know, you could say that came from humans to monkeys and then back to humans, which I think is a is a maybe a better model to, you know, find serendipity, then go to the animal to study it better. That makes a lot of sense to me. But I did I think we we talked, you know, we we keep actually now challenging um, also sometimes basic um, scientists to to give us good wins and good examples. And I think some have come up with um, some stories in MS for, for um, drug discovery, where I think there are a few wins, but it, it's very scarce. There's not much that we, we can really say, oh, this was an animal discovery. It worked in the animal and then it worked in the human, especially really nothing in functional. Do, do you have examples? 
yes, there are two. To my knowledge, there is the STN, which was a lesion, not a stimulation to start with. Yeah. And there is the PTSD. The P I, I published a review paper of uh, animal and human work with the PTSD. The, P the, the stimulation of the amygdala is based on hundreds of animal models of, uh, of post-traumatic stress disorders. And there is a huge literature on animal models before Langevin was the first to put an uh, electrode for uh, uh, PTSD. And this paper was rejected, uh, actually, from a brain stimulation and eventually published in Stereotactic and Movement Disorder. And you know why it was rejected from brain, brain stimulation? Because our conclusion in the paper, me and my fellow who is a psychologist from London, we said that post-traumatic stress disorder, which is very common in war uh, veterans, you know, in, in the U.S., uh, in, in, uh, in, in uh, people coming from Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, soldiers, uh, we said in that paper as conclusion that PTSD is probably the only psychiatric disease that can be prevented. Preventable. Don't send them to war. Don't go to war. Yeah. And you don't have yeah. And it was rejected flatly by by, <laughs> by the, the, the reviewer because it was politics, which is rubbish, mm. of course. Anyway, so PTSD with amygdala and SCN with uh, with Haggai Bergman and Tipo Aziz. Don't forget the, the year after Tipo Aziz confirmed the the same model, the same uh, uh, the same well, with the same model. So apart from these, animal work is done after human work. I mean, Lozano he publishes uh, uh, mice and rats swimming around after he discovered by serendipity that uh, the electrode was in the close to the fornix. So yeah. functional neurosurgery with the patient awake, not like today everybody is asleep, is a fantastic laboratory. You learn a lot. I have seen orgasm during surgery. I have seen uh, sexual fantasy. I have seen many, many things. Uh, people crying, people laughing, people, you know, during intraoperative uh, stimulation just by, by uh, and this sometimes can lead to too much serendipity. Yassine Temel, my friend from Maastricht, he, he thought he discovered the center for erection because uh, in the Tourette patient, the three Tourette patients, they had one who had uh, hypersexuality, one who had hypo, and one who was normal. And I told to Temel and Verli, who was on the paper, this is everyday life, sometimes more, sometimes less, sometimes nothing. So this is nothing special, but they put three papers Three papers on on uh, on uh, on erection uh, by a ser so-called serendipitous uh, uh, discovery. So it, sometimes it's too much serendipity, and the same with the experience of uh, uh, Oxford, where they have for urination, blood pressure, respiration, etc. Because they were stimulating in the periaqueductal gray, where many things happen there. Blood pressure can go up or can go down, and and then mm -hmm. we discover somewhere to for for uh, high blood pressure or uh, so. I think the, it's, it's important to look at the patient and the functional neurosurgeon are the best place and the neurologists, if they are in the operating room, to observe what happens and try to correlate to the location of the electrode. Yeah. And if you say too much serendipity, you mean that's because it was already known, right? But, but then maybe it wasn't reported enough. And that's another point, right? How can we... How can we make sure these serendipitous discoveries, even if they might be known to some, you know, get get better 
better venues and published better, you know, um, or or incentivize this more or um, because that that that's maybe another question that we had that um, we feel like if this is where everything came from, how can we double down on the strategy? How can we make it more systematic? How can we? Um, I know you can't force serendipity, but is there a way to better? you know, better observe or better report or find better journals, even just, you know, to, to publish case reports or do you have any thoughts, all of you, um, how we could use this more systematically? It's, it's, it depends also on the consistency of the observation. Yeah. Uh, for example, uh, Shakespeare wrote somewhere that once is nothing, twice is a coincidence, three times is a damn reality. So if you have have the same thing three times, so it's it's a reality. Otherwise, it's a coincidence. And if you if you see, for example, Viagra, how did Viagra come about? It was tried for the heart, and the patients were lying on their stomach in the ward, the trial patients, because they were afraid to show their erection. And it was not only one or two; it was several patients. So that's how Viagra which was designed for heart issues, uh, became for uh, erection issues. It's serendipity too. You have many serendipity in medicine also. Carbamazepine discovered uh, for, for uh, Tic Doudoureux by a Swedish uh, neurophysiologist who worked in, uh, in Uppsala and published in the 60s and 70s, was also serendipity. So you have to be observant and it has to be systematic. And the second thing when it comes to DBS is to have to check where are the and where is it coming from and see what circuitry what uh, what are you activating or or inhibiting but but my one in an optimal world um, following the accepted indication indication uh, your electrodes are always going to the very same place so and if the community agrees uh, and uh, andy finds out the sweet spot for for every uh, disease that is accepted in an optimal world, all the electrodes go perfectly to the anticipated sweet spot. So, so what? How many serendipitous uh, discoveries can be made in in the optimal world? Then, in the future, if if you know if uh, everyone is uh, as a precise neurosurgeon as you both are. So, that's we, that's my provoking question here. We are not that precise as you. No, despite micro recording, despite everything, we are not that precise. Number one. Number two, they may be different parts of the of the in the in the brain or the basal ganglia that, that react differently for some reason. We have one case that is published of a patient having a severe depression, crying in pallidal DBS. Pallidal DBS, and we have video of him uh, you know, completely crying. Uh, and he, the patient didn't know where we were stimulating, but the electrode was in the very posterior and medial GPI. And it was not too, too ventrally located. Yeah, it is partly too ventrally located, yeah, just going into the, the capsule. But it was not like a, it was not a bulbar reaction. It was, a, it was a, like, the Bejani, like the Bejani patient who was crying, the same. And I don't know why. We don't know why. Uh, some comments on serendipity. So I think it was very important that you brought out this paper, Marwan, because it um, showed people that uh, there's more than only systematic research. But I would say 
serendipity is actually a very common phenomenon. And for example, the place you are sitting now, Andy, it was discovered by serendipity. <laughs> and so I think many great discoveries in history, in arts, just any, anywhere, it's serendipity. But the issue is that serendipity only will be, uh, will, will be fruitful when you have a prepared mind. Uh, so if you are prepared, then maybe serendipity will come and will enlighten you. So if you're not prepared, you can see a lot of things, but you just don't know what, what it means and uh, if it will be important or not. Yeah. And uh, to, to come back to, to, to the second topic, we, we discussed about um, uh, animal research and uh, say, tactic function research. I think uh, there's um, great uh, going back and forth from the lab to, to, the, to the clinic. And that, of course, will not happen anymore in the future. Because when, when we look at the, the, the discovery, that was not uh, in rats or in, in mice, it was actually in primates. And this is not possible anymore in these times. And uh, I think it's, we don't need to discuss about, about ethics about this, but uh, I think we, we just enter a new state here and we have to see how we, this will develop further. Mm -hmm. With the prepared mind, what you mentioned, I, I really like the um, talk by uh, Ben Abid. He talked in uh, Charleston at the uh, Brain Simulation Conference last year, and he said that Newton, all, like uh, many people had seen the apple falling down the tree, but Newton was the prepared mind to then um, think about why does the apple fall down the tree. And I think he made, <laughs> compared himself to Newton in a way also in that case, um, for then, because many people had seen in the operation room that high frequency stimulation did lead to cessation of tremor. That is, you know, you you all know this, um, but me, I I don't think everybody knows this. So it wasn't a real discovery by him. It was more than to act upon it to make it a chronic um, treatment outside of the operation room. That is the real maybe invention that uh, he with Pierre Polak. Uh, I think uh, that's how Pierre Polak at least told me. Um, that was the real contribution in Grenoble, not so much the discovery that high-frequency stimulation works, but to to make it possible to do it outside of the operation room. So this is this is a very good point, you know, the uh, prepared mind. Again, maybe we can double down on that. Maybe we can teach people better to be prepared minds, right? Or to um, have better venues of how to... Because I think a lot of serendipity can be lost if, if, right, if it happens and nobody watches in a way. Um, so maybe to to now combine the two topics we had. Um, I think in your paper, Marwan, you you described that one of the six patients reported, even by James Parkinson, in in the beginning had a stroke, which led to a cessation of tremor. And there, I'm not you know knowledgeable enough, but I think that led to. All like many of the historical attempts to lesion M1 and maybe capsule, can can you to try to replicate that same effect? Is that true, or like can you enlighten me a bit on why why did people start lesioning primary motor cortex, for example, for for tremor? My grandson, this is uh, Ivan. Hi, Ivan. Ivan. Good to see you. How is it going? <laughs> Okay. Very good. Hello. We are we are babysitting here. Uh, uh, 
my grandson. Uh, anyway, uh, yes. What did you say, Andy? <laughs> so, 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 why did like the one case that had a stroke and then that led to a cessation of tremor from the, the the reports by James Parkinson? Did that lead to ablational studies in M1 at the time? That that's that's that what the scholarly liter that that's what the scholarly literature say. That why did they start the operation on the pyramidal tract from the cortex yes. to the spine on different levels? And I have read several old papers by Bussi, by others. There are two reasons. One was mentioned by, uh, by, uh, by shall I say, uh, Dr. Mon or shall I say Christian? Christian, please. <laughs> okay. It was that. Uh, Walter Dandy had said for a long time that the basal ganglia is a no man's land. Don't touch it because it has to do with the consciousness, etc. So people didn't dare to touch the basal ganglia. And uh, uh, they started with operation with removing uh, parts of M1 and all the way down. And the reason, and they justified this that patients who had a severe tremor would rather have a, a half-paralyzed arm than, uh, than shake. The problem is that later on they develop spasticity. You know, you get spasticity. So, so, uh, so it was not, uh, but, but for, for, many, for many years, it was the only operations and they tried to have as small region as possible with the, in the peduncle and, and down to the spinal root. René Lerich, a French uh, neurosurgeon, surgeon, he, he, he tried to remove the, the spinal roots to, to diminish the, the, the tremor. And it is said that this is based on that uh, observation that a stroke took away the, the, the shaking, which was the main, uh, the most observable uh, sign of uh, Parkinson disease at that time. You see, the, I, I, this is the only explanation. Yeah. And yeah, that I, is, that I is think it's such a I great th example. Sorry. Yeah. I think it's not at the, at the heart of the start of cortomies for movement disorders, right? If I, I don't remember Horsley uh, talking about these observations. I mean, he didn't start with Parkinson's disease or didn't operate on Parkinson's disease, but when he started to operate on this boy with atherosclerosis in 1890, um, he was just, uh, he was familiar with the state of the art neuroscience. He was a neuroscientist and a neurosurgeon at the same time. And he had the electrical stimulation at hand to delineate, uh, motor cortex, the excitable part of the, of the cortex. And then he, he had the technical skills and surgical skills to, to take the arm region out and to alleviate the, the symptoms. And that was uh, the main start then for movement disorder surgery and corticotomies all alike that followed then in different indications and so on and so forth. I think the discovery or, or the, it, it was just a rediscovery that Parkinson had mentioned this in his essay. I, 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 I doubt it very much that this was one of the driving uh, forces that led to the uh, origin of um, uh, movement disorder surgery or Parkinson's uh, surgery, uh, even on a cortical or lower level. Uh, yeah. So horsey operator or a patient with atetosis, that was, yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I said. That's what I said. Yeah. That's what I said. 
I, I, I'm not that old to, to, to be there. So I just read the literature. I wasn't around when, when this happened in the, in the 30s and, and 40s. So I just, I, I was not suggesting that my one bear with me. Of course not. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it probably is hard to, to make a direct, direct causal link here between the report by Parkinson and then the, the many like cortico, um, but it, uh, surgery, but, but yeah, but, but from a nowadays, from a nowadays perspective, it's still, uh, very striking that, you know, first of all. The surgeons really uh, were hesitant to touch the deep structures and all these superficial structures were, were cut with a scalpel first. Motor cortex, the pituncle, the spinal cord and whatever. So that, that's, that's pretty interesting to follow the, this line of evolution of movement disorder surgery before also by, by chance it was discovered that the striatum and the, and the depth part of the brain was actually not the the seat of consciousness or uh, that, uh, as proposed by, by Dandy, that, that should not be, should not be touched, but uh, it was also a random obs observation that led Russell Myers then to, to dare to put the scalpel deeper than, than, than cortex and to cut down into the, to the fibers and eventually following, you know, uh, uh, under visual inspection to, to cut, uh, the parapyramidal or exopyramidal pathways then. So would you say that was the first subcortical surgery by Well, it's, it, it's certainly among, uh, it, uh among the first, I, I think it has to be mentioned, mentioned to be uh, the first, uh, subcortical, uh, so, uh, not on the surface of the brain, a subcortical, uh, surgery for, for Parkinson's disease by, by Russell Myers. And actually, uh, he describes it, uh, wh why did he dare to, to do so? Uh, although it was against the surgical mainstream and this very um, influential uh, dogma that you should not touch upon the depth structures, because he had seen a patient uh, when being a resident that had an accident uh, and his frontal lobe was um, uh, cut um, uh, by a propeller of an, of an airplane. So, and, but the patient survived and he did not, uh, and, and he could then directly see by this massive accident to the skull, uh, he, he could see the basal ganglia directly. So the stratum, so he, he, he was, he, this was not in, in accordance what, what, what Dandy had taught so that this was the center of consciousness. You should never touch it, uh, this depth structures and he, uh, this at least he describes it as one of the uh, main uh, experiences that he had in, in order that, that, that made him to, to dare to put the scalpel deeper to, uh, through, uh, during one of his cortical surgeries on a patient with Parkinson's disease in, in 1939. That was even before the Second World War started. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Can I ask all of you, maybe Joachim, um, first, uh, why do you think animal research has not led to many treatments in, in surgery or neuromodulation? Is the brain just too complex or are the model diseases too far off from the actual diseases? So, so why do we have little wins in that classical? Well, I think uh, that the, the basic, so we, we should, when you think about it, we should know more about the basic ganglia when we look at, at animal research, yeah. But uh, somehow it, it's, 
still difficult to describe the, the, the real function of basal ganglia. Yeah? So I think I mean, still in the age where we can see the effects of uh, malfunction of the basal ganglia, but we still don't fully understand the, the function of the basal ganglia. Okay, we know much more than like 20 years ago, 40 years ago. But, but still, um, when, we, when we see sometimes people can live still w without some part of the basal ganglia, yeah? And so it's still questionable why does it cause a disease in some patients and others not. And um, so the models we have are very simple, I think. For example, like 6-hydroxydopamine model, alpha-synoglene model, it's just too simple, and we look into always certain aspects. So we, we don't just don't understand the whole picture. Hmm. And maybe if you look at the future, we, we, we can use artificial intelligence also to understand more of the functions. But often we have one thesis. We want to prove that thesis. And uh, the trial will be negative if that thesis has not been proven. Mm. Uh, and yeah, maybe I mean in a clinical trial. Yeah, a clinical trial. But, but also we, when we go to animal research, we, we want to show this or, or that. And uh, I think uh, we should come to a point where we uh, are able to understand more the complex issues we, we see. And uh, I think we're not there yet. And uh, so the, basically animal models are too simple mm. in any aspects. And then... This revelation, right, that, again, it was eye-opening to read your paper, Marwan, um, uh, and to me, um, this revelation that most wins come from human observations and serendipity should have strong implications for funding and also how we publish, right? So I've heard the quote that um, there's always a Nature article each year about a cure in Alzheimer's disease in mice, right, but not, not in humans. And, um, you know, animal research gets published higher, gets more funding and so on. And I, I pitched this concept um, to the director of the National Institute of Mental Health, Josh Gordon, who I interviewed in episode 27, who is an optogenetics researcher, which again already is, you know, a bit telling, right? That the director of the for mental health, um, of course, is a, is a basic a basic science researcher. So, and and he was not readily convinced. I think he, he saw certainly very much value in serendipity and, and, you know, also said it's very hard to, of course, systematically exploit that, but um, how are you? Are you do you, do you think that there should be potentially a shift in, you know, the the, the things that have the wins in in treating the brain, um, being more you know better funded, better published, or so? Or what, what are your thoughts on that? I think that the, the two things. Number one, that as you said. In my university here in Umeå and even in, in London before and everywhere, basic science and animal basic science weighs a lot more in terms of grants and prestige and Nobel Prize and all you, you want. So clinical trials, it's like audits, more or less. More or less. And uh, it is a little bit soft science. So uh, one of the latest Nobel Prize who worked and discovered in this university, who is now in Max Planck Institute, is the French lady Charpentier who discovered the CRISPR uh, scissor, you know, the, the scissor of the, the genetic. Uh, she worked here in Umeå and, and uh, she discovered here in Umeå and then she moved to Max Planck and, and she is the most renowned and they have put a lot of uh, 
of energy and of funding and of prestige in basic science. Now, when it comes to 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 our our uh, our field, which is actually functional neurosurgery, functional neurosurgery is not only tremor; is the personality, is the non so-called now non-motor symptoms in Parkinson's disease. It's psychiatry, it's dystonia, it's body image, it's uh, all these things. These cannot be re replicated properly in, in uh, animal model. I remember Ted Hitchcock, who is one of the pioneers, a great uh, neurosurgeon in, in, uh, in the UK, is dead now. I'm sure Joachim uh, knows him. Uh, you remember Ted Hitchcock, Joachim. When 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 uh, when stem when uh, fetal cell transplant were uh, were proven to be very good in mice, he had a talk and he said fetal transplant can cure Parkinson's disease in the mice. This is very good news for the mice. <laughs> that, that that was his comment. Yeah. So so uh, and this is very good news for Alzheimer rats or mice, but. In, in terms of functional neurosurgery that deals with not only tremor again, even in Parkinson's disease, you have to, why do you investigate patients with Parkinson's disease uh, regarding cognition, behavior, uh, uh, comorbidities, etc.? You cannot replicate these in an animal model. You can do animal model for glioma uh, to test a new uh, therapy, a new medication, a new whatever. You can do animal models uh, especially to check the side effect and complication of drug therapy. Not only that effect, but the side effect oh. and the dosage. But in psych especially in psychiatry, but even in movement disorder, it's very difficult to have an animal model that is immediate uh, disease. Remember, the MPTP is an immediate Parkinson's disease overnight. Andy, are you there? Right? I'm there. Yes. Yeah. So. It's MPTP patients who in California, they got Parkinson's disease overnight. They didn't get the slowly progressive uh, uh, disease. So in my opinion, our source of knowledge is to see and observe and be prepared as Joachim said, and also to try to understand why an electrode in that's, where is the electrode? What, what, is, what goes there? What what happened uh, if you stimulate high or low frequency? Uh, uh, your tractography, uh, functional imaging, all these things can help us to understand in the patient. My only regret now is that most of our patients are operated nowadays asleep, not only here, but also, and we lose this during surgery. We may have it after surgery when we program the patient, but it's too late then to change or to, mm. to test extra or to, you understand? It is interesting, Marwan, because you that's so true. Sorry. Sorry, Andy, I have to make that point. That is so true, Marwan. Thank you. Thank you. But, but you were always pushing for image guided and no microelectrode recordings and so on, Marwan, right? The, no, no, but no, you were not no, pushing no, for wrongly. You're wrong. You're wrong. Okay. You're wrong. Everybody does image guided. What I was pushing was for image verified. In London, we always did an MRI immediately during surgery on the awake or asleep patient to see the electrode on 50 shades of gray MRI, not technical MRI. You know, where you see the, the STN and you see if the electrode is there or the pallidum or where in the pallidum it is. So 
it is image guide. Everybody has image guided. Everybody does an MRI before or CT. We have image sure. verified before removing the frame, before you remove the frame. Because once you remove the frame and you're wrong, you have a new operation. If we were wrong, we could replace it half an hour in the same session. So image verified. And this is to understand the correlation anatomy to... Now, it was not physiology unless you you think that physiology is only micro-recording. Actually, it was physiology because as soon as you have a probe in the brain and you stimulate, you're doing physiology. Right, uh, Christian? You're right. So GBS is applied neurophysiology yes. in the hands of a stereotactic neurosurgeon. And in an optimal world, it's applied neurophysiology in the hands of an interdisciplinary team consisting of neurologists, surgeons, and perhaps psychiatrists even. Yes, you're right. You're right. So that, that's what I want to say. I, I want to slowly wrap up to be mindful of your time as well. So we've talked a lot about history today. Um, but I wanted to ask each one of you, uh, maybe uh, after another, about the future of the field as well. So um, maybe if you have the time, each one of you could tell us where we will be in five to ten years and maybe also touch upon missed opportunities. So things we should be doing to get there faster, um, but are not doing right now. Can we start with, I don't know, Christian maybe? Yeah, well, it, it's difficult to tell where we are in in. In, in five years from now on. So I, I fear we are not much farther than we have progressed throughout the last five years. Um, but leaving the skepticism uh, apart, I think what is important for the future and what is the one of the most important lessons to learn from history as we have discussed. Uh, so it's, it's it, it, my take is that it's about interdisciplinary teamwork and the conjunction. So, in, so um, stereotactic and functional neurosurgery is really at the heart of multiple disciplines. And uh, we, we, we can learn this from history. So we did, we talked about Spiegel. He worked together with the neurosurgeon Weisses. We talked about Hustler. He worked together with Richard and Munninger, the neurosurgeons. And so the, 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 he talked about Benabit, he worked with the neurologist Polak and so on. This list is endless. And it, I think it, it's about one of the most important things that we should never forget, that it's about the, the if you want to uh, further develop this discipline and make further progress, that this interdisciplinary effort is not lost and is even intensified, although uh, I understand that you need to fight the gravitational forces of the ever more specialized disciplines like neurology is getting more specialized, neurosurgery and so on and so forth. And I think you have to fight these gravitational forces and bring back this interdisciplinary effort to the core of our work and to develop this interdisciplinary uh, uh, curriculum uh, where basically all the disciplines are e equally contributing, and then I think this would be the best thing for for the future. Great, Joachim. Yeah, well, I think uh, the future will be great and open, and um, we always, in a way, go forward and backward at the same time. So what we saw during the last few years, we had rediscovery of lesioning surgery, we had rediscovering of psychiatric surgery. I, I think this will be ongoing. I'm certain we will rediscover 
proof of innovation and other methods that have been abandoned. And somebody will think we just discovered something great and new. On the other hand, I think um, may maybe DBS will not be the main topic forever. Yeah? We've been living in the realm of the brain simulation now for we are 25, 30 years. And many people think that actually the brain simulates, or, or I should say the other way, many people think that function neurosurgery is the same like the brain simulation, which of course is not the case. It's just one aspect, yeah. And um, as I said before, I think uh, we, we should use more and think about of artificial intelligence. We, we recently started uh, to analyze the brain signals uh, with uh, convolutional neural networks. I think this is completely underused nowadays. And uh, this will help certainly to understand because very complex uh, uh, situations, which we cannot decipher very easily when we look only at single aspects, but we will also have some, some practical use. For example, we could have more of automated programming because nowadays, for example, with DBS, machinery is getting more and more complex. So every one of us is spending so much time on programming, and we're very happy to have uh, 12 contacts, maybe 16 contacts, maybe 100 contacts in the end. But it's beyond our capabilities uh, to take care of that. So I, I think we will, in the future, we will have many algorithms which will be helpful. In Europe, I must say, we have one special problem that is not the case in the United States, and that is the medical device regulation. So the medical device regulation, when it was installed, it was for good reasons. But in the meantime, I think it hinders progress in many different aspects, development of new instruments, development of um, specific ways to, to perform new indication. Also, the OCD issue we, we talked about is related with the medical device regulation that it has not a CE mark any longer. And that is not because the companies are, do not see that they can make money because it, it, the other way, they it has become too expensive for them for often indications to establish uh, this, um, the, the systems. Yeah? And there's some sign that this mellows down the rules for the uh, medical device regulation. And I hope we will have much more allowance again in the future. Wait, now one. I, I have been fortunate to be invited to talk when DBS had uh, 10 years anniversary in, uh, in uh, 97 in Amsterdam, 20 years anniversary in uh, Madrid, 2007, and 30 years anniversary, it was in London actually in 2017. And each time it was, what is the future? And I used to say what I'm going to say now. The next five to 10 years, it will be Parkinson's disease, dystonia, essential tremor. I said that every time. I said that every time, even when the psychiatry was coming up in 99 after that, I said the future will be of DBS will be mainly in movement disorder in five to 10 years. I have said that now three times over the last 35 years. And I will say it again today. It will be with new technology, probably with better imaging, with the electrodes, with the 18 contacts or uh, whatever they do, or uh, directional uh, technological advances. 
that, by the way, will complicate our life much more uh, without making a dent into the results. And I asked Falkman, are your results better now than in Kiel? Oh, he said, we need thousands of patients to prove, to prove that. So more and more complicated tools, more and more uh, uh, expensive tools, uh, precept now with, with sensing, and sensing is a is a is a, a tool of research mainly. It, it drains the battery like hell uh, if you use sensing too much. But you have nice papers. You have papers like the last last one from Andrea Kuhn about what happened at Christmas with your beta activity that goes down. Uh, you've seen that paper, Andy. I think you are on that paper. Uh, on, so, yes. Yeah. So what happened now is that. It will be new tools, new imaging, new maybe artificial intelligence to see better the STN for those who are blind uh, and, and cannot look at the MRI uh, T2. But the future, and I say today, and let's meet in five years if I'm still alive, it will be movement disorders mainly. Not tinnitus, not Alzheimer, not, uh, not anything else. They will be there, but it will be mainly movement disorder. So you have a bright future as a neurologist, Andy. Okay, great. Uh, that is, I mean, I wouldn't even say this is pessimistic. This is this is very much it. Can, uh, it it it's still you know it's still marvelous how well it works for these indications, and um, we don't need to you know broaden the indications if they don't if it doesn't work as well for the other diseases. So I'm totally with you. Um, we have to prove that there is a we can make a dent in other indications before they will of course you know become become relevant. So yeah. Thank you, everyone. This was really amazing for me. You three are really the heroes uh, when it comes to knowledge, uh, especially in the history field, but also your knowledge, of course, very much um, goes beyond that. And uh, uh, it was, you know, even just when you talk, sometimes very impressive uh, how much uh, you can just pull out of your head and knowledge. Kristen, did you want to say, to say something? No, 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 no. I've so, so thanks again um, for taking the time. I know how busy you all are. It was hard to find a date where everybody could um, make it. So, so it, it is very much appreciated. And I think um, I learned a lot. So I hope the listeners will learn a lot too. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks, Andy. It was great fun. Thank you, Andy. That was great fun to talk to you all, guys. <laughs>